Guys, uh, guys, we've been talking about um, uh, the whole aspect of glory. And one of the things we are saying is that the glory of God is best recognized in His attributes. Uh, and I'll keep opening every um, Sunday with these statements, partly for the sake of the tape, partly so we remember. Moses says to God, Oh God, show me your glory. And then God goes on to describe his attributes and lays them before Moses, saying, my goodness, my compassion, my mercy, my this, my that. And he begins to lay it out before uh, Moses. And so one of the ways to understand kabod or glory or the nature and the splendor of Christ is to begin to see the attributes of God. And strangely enough, some of these attributes <laughs> are, are encased in these things that we have called beatitudes. And so what we launched uh, last week was a study of each of the Beatitudes or each of those verses in Matthew 5, 3 to 10. Because in it, you'll find hidden spiritual torpedoes that will arm you both for a life that, is, uh, that carries in it the attributes of God and weapons that can undo uh, any corruption from touching us. So yes, last time we did, Blessed are the uh, poor in spirit for they shall... Be called, they shall. Come on, guys. Blessed are the poor in spirit for? Theirs is the kingdom of God. This this week we'll be studying, blessed are, the, blessed are they who mourn, for they shall be comforted. So last week we said that when you spot a man who is living out Matthew 5, 3 to 10, or a woman, when you spot a man or a woman who is living out Matthew 5, 3 to 10, you will see in him a reflection of the nature and splendor and character of God. So in a crowd, if you spot somebody who is living out Matthew 5, 3 to 10, you'll immediately see in him the splendor, the nature, the character and the attributes of God. Because held in these beatitudes is the very nature of God. And by the way, in a sense, the Sermon on the Mount should be called the Sermon After the Mount. Because if you go to Luke chapter 6, you'll see that in Luke chapter 6, here's what's happening. Jesus has spent an entire day on the mountain. And he prayed through the night on top of the mountain. And he finishes praying at night and then he comes down the mountain. And he picks 12 out of all his disciples and calls them apostles. And after he goes through this, he now stands before his disciples and he's beginning this um, sermon and that's when the rest of the crowd joins him. So it's really not a sermon that happened on the mount, it's a sermon that happened after the mount. Luke chapter 6 shows it. So Jesus had gone up to the mountain, prayed through the night, come down, selected 12 of his disciples, designated them apostles and then once he was on the plains he starts addressing his disciples and a large crowd joins him and that's when we hear his voice. I mean, just think of this, eh? These, these are some of the times I really would have liked to be there, where suddenly um, the, the crowd hears him beginning to speak, and uh, he cries out saying, Blessed are they who mourn, for they shall be comforted. That's when he says these sentences. And in the context of the people hearing, guys, these are people who've now lived for years under the tyranny of Rome. They've been under Roman rulership for years. They've been under ruthless leaders like Herod who haven't thought much of them. They've 
this is a nation called the people of God and this is a nation that's gone through the humiliation of being under the tyranny of Rome and in the midst of this Jesus comes and says that blessed are they who mourn or they that are they, they that are in grief for they shall be comforted and so the, to the hearers this was like joy and comfort but the thing is they didn't understand it the way they needed to understand it they saw it as Jesus saying, okay, I'm going to bring in a new kingdom. I'll overthrow Rome. But that wasn't what Jesus was saying. And so Jesus' announcement of the kingdom was a source of joy and comfort to them. But they didn't perceive it as an earthly kingdom. I mean, they perceived it as an earthly kingdom, not as something that God was going to bring later. And I'd suggest to you that that's what happened with the Beatitudes anyways, even today. We see the Beatitudes and we come to our own conclusions about them. When really, man... This is kingdom life being played out. So one of the things I want to do right now is talk about what kind of mourning are we being asked to engage in? When Jesus says, blessed are they who mourn, what kind of mourning are we asked to engage in? And what is the, what is the, um, what, to what end are we supposed to mourn? Why mourn? First, what kind of mourning are we to engage in? And then, what is the end of it? Why are we mourning? To what end? And so we'll discuss three different aspects. Um, and um, I'm sure there are more, but we'll discuss three different aspects. Any questions before we go on? Okay. Guys, the first one, the first thing we need to know that this mourning cannot be equated with having a heavy, depressed spirit or the loss of a loved one. There's mourning that happens at funerals. There's mourning that happens when you are depressed, when you have a heavy heart. This mourning is not that mourning. We are not talking about mourning where it's the mourning of the loss of a loved one or the mourning of a depressed spirit. Let me qualify it. I'm not saying that God does not have comfort for every sorrow. You see that in Psalm 56, verse 8, where God says, I bottle up your tears and they are forever before me. So it's not that God does not comfort in every sorrow. It's not that every sorrow does carry the promise of God's comfort. But in the context of what we are saying, it is secondary, guys. So this mourning is not that to be equated with a depressive spirit or the loss of a loved one. This morning, one of the aspects, this morning is, this morning is an outcome of catching a panoramic view or a glimpse, a panoramic view of God and His attributes. This morning is triggered off by, or this morning is triggered by, or is an outcome of. This morning is triggered by, or an outcome of, catching a panoramic view, or even just just a sudden glimpse of God and His attributes. Guys, remember this scene, okay? Here's, here's what it says. It was in the year that Uzziah died that 
I saw God seated on his throne and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim with six wings. With two they covered their face, with two they covered their feet and with two they flew. And as they flew, they cried out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And the doorpost and the threshold of the temple shook and the temple was filled with smoke. And I said, Whoa, I am undone, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live amongst the people of unclean lips. For I have seen the glory of the king. Look at the reaction, man, of Isaiah. You catch this panoramic view of God as he is and it just it just tears you inside oh I'm undone that's what Isaiah's response is we gotta, we gotta get this man blessed are they that mourn they that mourn they that look at God and then they look at themselves and they say my God it's something else man You know, the greater the grasp that we have of the Father's kabod or the Father's glory, the greater the grasp that we have of the Father's glory, the more distressed you will be at anything in your life or in the world around you that dishonors Him or distresses Him. I remember this was, I think, in 1993 or 94, maybe 94. I was at Richmond Pentecostal Church and uh, there was this kid pastor man called Mike. I mean now I can call him kid because I'm I'm as old as I am. But uh, and uh, he came up and he just asked people who wanted to come up who knew their their life was something that belonged to God to come up and I went up and then at some point he came near to pray for me and he didn't even touch me man. He, he just came and started praying at a distance and I just found myself on the floor. And so I'm on the floor now and uh, usually after a while you get up, but I'm finding that I can't get up. So I'm trying to get up and I just can't get up off my back. And um, people are beginning to um, say things like, oh, maybe he's gone off to sleep. And they don't know that I'm completely conscious and I can hear them. <laughs> Some other guys are saying, uh, the guys who brought me, I didn't have a car then, so someone drove me to the church and he finally, he started playing the keyboard. His name was Kevin Fricker. He started playing the keyboard and I just started singing. And um, But I couldn't get up. I was trying really hard. I was saying, Father, come on. People are looking at me and thinking there's something seriously wrong with me. Let me go. And I couldn't get up. And finally, Kevin said, uh, i got to take my wife home. Uh, everybody's gone, so I'll come back later. And he locks the church and I'm in the church alone, man. Uh, and you know how big that church is so I'm staying there and then God began to do something really odd man he would begin to show me who his son was In he would pick an area so let's say he picks up uh, humility and then he would in a flash show me how humble Jesus was 
And I would just burst into tears because I would see where I was at. And it would be just awe and tears. All God was doing me was showing who his son was and it would suddenly show me where I was. Then he would take mercy and he would show me how merciful he was and he would show me where I was at mercy. This continued for about two hours, man. Two hours. And then finally when it was done, I said, Father, can I go now? And he asked me, will you ever... um, not trust me and the promises that I've given you because I've told you things and you've not been trusting me. I said, I will. He said, okay, you can get up and go. And in a flash, like a magnet was turned on, turned off. I got up off my back and left. Never happened again. Not looking forward to it. But uh, why am I relating this incident to you? Because all that happened during those two hours that I was on my back was this simple thing. God showing me who he was and then in one flash, me recognizing where I was at. And there was a huge distance, man huge distance. And the distance didn't make make me feel rotten. The distance made me want to worship. Oh, I'm undone for I have seen the king. And then what does God do? He comes with a coal from the fire and he touches Isaiah's lip and he says, but I have made you clean. We got to get back to this man. Blessed are they that mourn. They that see who he is and are undone by it. You know in Ezekiel 9 verses 3 and 4, you'll find Ezekiel describing another vision in which he says, And then the glory of the Lord rose from amongst the cherubs and it moved to the threshold of the temple. And when it moved to the threshold of the temple, there were some men standing there with measuring rods and with in linen. And God says to those men, go through the midst of Jerusalem and set a mark, set my mark upon the foreheads of those that sigh and groan at the abominations they see around them. Point being, have you noticed how callous we have become to sin around us. It's odd, eh? I mean, I'm surprised at the things I laugh at and that I'm not uh, appalled by. And yet here he says, mark those guys on their foreheads, the guys that sigh and groan at the abominations that they see around them. Guys, this is not a matter of tears shed, huh? It's a condition of the heart. Tears. Uh, uh, l- l- let me tell you this. There have been times in my life, not too many, but there have been enough times in my life where I have shed tears on a Sunday morning in worship and gone and done things that are wrong. So it's not a matter of tears being shed. It's a matter of the condition of the heart. Beware when you and I can disobey with indifference. Let me say that again. Beware when you and I can disobey with indifference. Because it's the first step towards the callousness of the heart. And the callousness of the heart will always result in the construction of a stronghold. Let me say that again. Beware indifference. Beware disobedience, disobeying with indifference. 
Beware disobeying with indifference. That last word that you can't read is indifference. Beware disobeying with indifference. Uh, so am I saying there are different kinds of disobediences? They're all bad, but I just want to say to you that there is a disobedience that comes with indifference, where now it's become, uh, become what's that word? Laissez-faire or something? Yeah, whatever, how are you, uh, that word. Where it's become a matter of, ah, this is so common for me that really, uh, I've gotten away with it so, so long that it doesn't matter. I can continue in indifference in this area. Beware the disobedience that comes with indifference. Why? Because it is one step away, one step away from callousness of heart or hardness of heart. Callousness of heart or hardness of heart. And two steps away from the construction of strongholds. One has to have a hardness of heart before you've got solid foundations to build a stronghold. So are they. I've got to develop a hardness of heart in an area before I can uh, lay. Once I do that, now I have a good strong foundation for the building of a stronghold. I'm not encouraging you. I'm discouraging you. Yeah. Because now, in that area, I've got hard heart. Hard heart is good ground for building a stronghold. And which means you're three steps away now <laughs> from creating a demonic hideout. You need you need strongholds for demons to hide in. Why is it that in certain situations demons can't be cast out? Because there is a stronghold that has to be demolished before demons can be cast out. Because they find in my life a certain stronghold that I have built that they can always hide in because I have willingly constructed that stronghold. Righteousness is a seed for deliverance, guys change my thinking and think right and suddenly I'm delivered without being touched or spoken or prayed over. Any questions on that before we go on? Go ahead, Ruth. Yeah. I'm three steps away from creating a demonic hideout because it's strongholds that enable the devil to have a foothold in my life or find a place to hide because a stronghold is a certain way of thinking, a certain way of practicing um, things that I believe, a certain way of uh, reasoning, a certain lofty thing that I have raised above the principles of God. Now that I've established this in my life, there is a hideout for the demonic to find refuge in. And therefore, it's difficult to chase them out. Why? Because I have built a fortress for them to live in. So if I undo the fortress, they have no place to hide and they have to leave. This is why sometimes it's insufficient to cast out a demon. What is required is a change of thinking.
Any questions on that? You identify, if there is a stronghold in my life, the rest of the world will see it because my thinking affects the way I behave. If there's a stronghold in my marriage, you will see it because it will be shown in the way I treat my wife. If there's a stronghold in my parenting, you will see it because they will see it. You will see it in the way I deal with my children. In the words of my mouth. True. Very true. But the person with a stronghold usually has other people, especially in a body like this, who can tell them that they have a problem. Yeah, uh, but sometimes you can be blind to it. Like it's like a blind spot. Yeah, or a blind spot. Let's just make allowance for perhaps it's possible. I I agree with you. Usually I know my faults. It's only some things that I don't see till someone points it out. Guys, check what you laugh at. After, After I started writing this, I was thinking to myself, man, Jacob, some of the things you watch on TV and you laugh at are so odd for a guy who's been a believer for so long and is a pastor and stuff like that. I was surprised at something that I was laughing at last week, which was pretty ugly in the sight of God. But I thought it was so funny. It had to do with some jokes between two homosexuals. Because uh, most of the TV series have stuff about two guys and the way they were acting. I, I, was, la- I was laughing at it. And when I started writing this, I'm thinking to myself, boy, you can laugh at stuff. The God wouldn't laugh at. When I laugh at, check what I laugh at, what I take lightly, what I tolerate. Go ahead. Mm-hmm. And as I was about to use the vacuum to clean the car, take your hand off the mic. Sorry. Yeah. As I was about to use the vacuum to clean the car, there was a guy over there searching the bin, the dirt bin of the vacuum. And I thought he was looking for money. So I'm just like, did you find any change? He says, no, I'm not looking for change. I'm looking for drugs. I said, what? He says, yeah, man, you, you cabbies get a lot of passengers, and a lot of them drop their drugs, and you vacuum it, and you don't know. And I said, I'm like, well, that's a long shot to find drugs. He goes, yeah, no, last week I found this, this, and this. Um, and then he comes and tells me, don't you agree, man? Uh, anything better than drugs is free drugs. And for some reason, I just sense something. And out of nowhere, I just told him, no, I don't agree with you. And I don't think that's funny either. And I went into the office, and I came back. And he was still there. He says, man, I'm so sorry. I apologize. The way I didn't mean to uh, offend you. I said, you did not offend me, but what you said was not funny. And I just told you the way it was. Good man. I've seen that in you. That there are certain things that you don't tolerate, which is good. And then there are, yeah, we leave the other side alone. Uh, There are things that I laugh at. There are things that I take lightly. There are things that I tolerate. There are things that I excuse. And there are things that I enjoy that don't necessarily match up with the character or the attributes of God. I want to change that. The reason we 
the reason we laugh at and take things lightly and tolerate and excuse and enjoy um, certain things that are either sinful or not kosher before God is, guys, because we get accustomed to the sight and sound of sin. We, we, have, we have gotten accustomed to the sight and sound of sin and we are unfamiliar with the face of God. We have gotten accustomed to the sight and sound of sin and we are unfamiliar with the face of God. The more time I spend in front of the TV, the more desensitized I am to the face of God and the more accustomed I am to the things of the world. Even if it's a shopping channel. Because I just could hear some of you thinking, but I just watched the shopping channel. So stop doing it, um, Jason. The shopping channel isn't the place that you need to park yourself at. Pardon? Did anyone ask your opinion, Sue? So... Yeah. 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 Sometimes we will laugh at. Yeah. When I laugh at, take lightly, tolerate, excuse, or enjoy sin, it's because I'm accustomed to the sight and sound of sin, and unfamiliar with the face of God. We've got to get back to morning. James four verses eight and nine puts it this way. It says, "Thanks." It says, draw nigh unto God and he will draw nigh unto you. Then it goes on to say, afflict yourself. You who laugh, mourn. You who are cheerful, weep. Another place, Jesus puts it this way. Those that are eating now will go hungry later. Those that are laughing now will weep later. The point being that Jacob, when you feed yourself... Here's the thing, guys. Yeah, we'll come to that a little later. Guys, remove the things that hinder you from mourning. Remove the things that hinder you from mourning. And here are some of the things that hinder you from mourning. Remove the things that hinder you from mourning. And here are some of the things that hinder you from mourning. One, being content with your present condition. Being content. Being content with your present Christian condition. May I say it very clearly, there are people in this room right now who are quite content with the progress they have made uh, over the last few years. That's that's a very uh, potent way to um, desist from mourning. Two, it's a bad thing where I'm content with my present Christian condition, okay. well, then I don't need to look at God anymore. Don't you think that uh, belief that you know, like was said, no matter what we do, our salvation is guaranteed, contributes to that situation? Yeah, but at the same time, every, every, any change in my life should come out of uh, my love for the Father. So you can't go to Sarah or Shanna and say, hey, by the way, you guys better watch out because you're going to lose your daughtership if you mess up can't. They're your daughters forever. Everything they do in obedience to you will have to come out of love. But that's what you said from the father's angle. This yeah. is from the child's angle. 
Yeah, but I have to teach the child that I'm going to love the child all my life, regardless of what the child does. That there's nothing that will take away a child's. Um, Yeah, and that's why the church hasn't understood love, the love of God. That, And what the church has done then, James, is they've gone and created theologies that frighten people into following God. God wants people to have the freedom to love Him or not love Him. He's never going to take that freedom away. What we have done in churches is, just to keep people on the straight and narrow, we tell them now that if you don't, this will happen. If We put false rules that God hasn't. Yeah. We can't take away the freedom. Yeah. So that the child now loves the father, knowing that I'll never lose my sonship. I've got a choice now. Yeah. And the child can abuse it. Yeah. The child can abuse it. Yeah, so you, you help the child develop a sense of a governing inside. This is the best way to parent. It is possible. I know Eric is practicing it. I can't show you evidence because my kids are not around. But one of the things that Eric is now beginning to demonstrate among his three children, uh, two, the other one is just two months old, is he's training them to have, uh, uh, to govern themselves from inside. So he can take them and show them roadkill. But so that they know from inside, so that he doesn't have to tell. They'll begin to learn from inside that these are the ways of the God of my father, and these are the ways of my father, as in physical father. And I'm going to learn them inside, so that you will be governed from inside. Basically what Matt is saying is, uh, you've got to comfort the child at that time, and then teach him how to avoid and, and get the positive thing out, out of that incident. Yeah. See, uh, um, let, let me put it this way. I went to a church where they have, they've been taught that you whack your child uh, after two warnings. So in every house uh, of the people that go to the church, they have a wooden spoon. And on the convex side of the wooden spoon, they got an uh, unhappy face. And on the concave side is a happy face. And when a child misbehaves, the parent goes and shows the child the happy face once. If the child misbehaves again, it's a happy face again once more. And then if the child misbehaves a third time, it's an uh, angry face, and the child gets whacked. That church has been practicing it. Someone came and taught them that. You know what's happening to the children? They are beginning to take that and superimpose it on God. And it enrages me. Enrages me that, that God is being seen that way. These kids now grow up thinking that God is someone who will give them two chances with a smile, and then begin to frown and beat them up. The father wants to teach me, his son Jacob, how to respond to him in obedience, surely by understanding who he is and loving him. It doesn't matter whether I was a Christian when I was one year old as a Christian or whether I'm 20 years old as a Christian. This has been his way of doing it from the beginning. And if there is a parent who knows how to do it, it is him. And if he can deal with a rebellious son like me, then he, we can deal with our rebellious children differently too.
Remove the things that hinder you from mourning. Don't be content with your present Christian condition because if you do, then you never need to look at the face of God because you're content. And if I don't see him seated in uh, the temple with the uh, with his robe filling the temple, then I, I, I won't need to say, oh, I'm undone because I'm quite satisfied with where I'm at. Secondly, Uh, if there's a we will we we hinder mourning when we resist change we hinder mourning when we resist change how does that work the more I resist change the more callous my heart or the more hardened my heart we already talked about that when God comes and says you says to you this is the way Jacob you need to behave with your wife or this is the way you need to behave with your husband get on with it Jacob Stop resisting the change that I'm asking you to make. Because the more you resist, the, the harder your heart is. You can justify it, come up with excuses, but the harder your heart gets. Third, failure to let go of pet habits, pet thought patterns, pet sins. Failure to let go of pet habits, pet thought patterns, pet sins. It's almost like what do we afford ourselves? The more I afford myself pet habits, pet thought patterns, pet sins that are out of sync with God, the more I'll move away from... from pet sins. Here's another one. Procrastination. Where it's the sense of saying, I'll take care of it tomorrow. Yeah, I, I realize I have a problem, but I'll take care of it tomorrow. I realize I have a problem, but I'll take care of it starting my birthday. Meaning, Anne, you've got to start tomorrow. <laughs> I'll take care of it uh, when I come back from a trip. I'll take care of it when I get some money. Procrastination. And the last one that uh, I want to throw it right now is feeding on a f 1 John 2.16 diet. Feeding on a 1 John 2.16 diet. 1 John 2.16 diet is basically the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. <laughs> Feed on that diet, and I assure you, morning will be the last thing on your mind. 1 John 2.16 it's on, it's in your sheet, I think. First John two sixteen. Pardon? If you understand the sense of mourning here. Okay. Any questions on that before we move on to mourning a man acquainted with grief? That's the second aspect of mourning we want to deal with. Any questions on that? Any disagreements? Okay, blessed are they who mourn. Let's take on a second aspect of mourning. Guys, the second aspect of mourning, uh, it's under the title, A Man Acquainted with Grief. One of the names that Jesus is called, which we prefer not referring to him, to him as, is man of sorrows acquainted with grief. Man of sorrows acquainted with grief. You will never hear a worship leader saying, we worship you man of sor sorrows. Because somehow that's not something you want to equate with Jesus Christ. Yet it's said of him in Isaiah 53. 
I want to say this to you. If you're looking for Jesus, you will often find him where Jairus is weeping over his daughter. You'll often find him following the widow who is walking out of the city carrying the coffin of her only son. You'll often find him in the porches of Bethesda where the crippled and the lame used to gather and collect hoping that an angel would come and stir up the water so that they could touch and be healed. These are the places you'll find him in. You'll find him at Gethsemane where people are going through this horrible time of grief not knowing how to decide stuff. These are the places you find this man of sorrow is acquainted with grief. Romans 12.5 puts it this way. Paul says, Jacob, rejoice with those, those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. It's in these places, guys. Places like Jairus' house. Places like the widow outside the city taking her son outside the city of Nain to be buried. In the porches of Bethesda. Bethesda. It's in these places that you suddenly come to understand, oh shucks, here is this man called the man of sorrows who's acquainted with griefs and grief. And the thing about Jesus is that he's not like one of Job's comforters. Job's comforters were trying their best to offer well-meant words to divert Job's heart. This is not what you're talking about. This is not someone who gives you well-meant words to divert your heart because they just don't know what else to say. This is the kind of man who has the ability to, one, understand your grief and then begin to raise the dead, heal the sick, set demons, set the demon-possessed boy free and give him back to his father, restore Peter when he's feeling really rotten, feed the 5,000 because he has compassion on them. Let me put it this way, guys. It's not enough to know a God who heals. I must know his groaning and compassion for those who suffer. One of the things that's happened to the charismatic church is that we know a God who heals, but we do not know his groaning and his compassion over those that he is healing. You'll see this word repeated again and again in the Bible. He was moved with compassion. It says that Jesus was outside the city of Nain, and as he was walking, he saw a woman carrying her son in a coffin. And he was moved with compassion, so he went and touched the coffin, and they stopped. And then he says, let his son be raised. Another place, he's with people, they've been listening to him throughout the day. And he looks at them and he was moved with compassion because they had followed him and not eaten for days. So he said, let us feed them. (laughs) He was with a crowd one day and he mourned for them because he saw them as sheep without a shepherd and he was moved with compassion. And when he was moved with compassion, he began to heal the sick and drive out demons. It is insufficient to know a God who heals. I must know his groaning and his compassion. What do you think was happening at Lazarus's tomb? You think he wept because Lazarus had died? He wept half angry and half sad at the this thing called death that robs. When, when this becomes a heart, no? Then we become Isaiah 61, three people. Then this church will become the Christ who is sent to heal the brokenhearted, who is sent to bring comfort to the mourner, 
who is sent to open the eyes of the blind and who is sent to set the prisoner free. Now it's no longer a power thing. It comes out of this compassion. Because that's where you would find Jesus. Man of sorrows acquainted with grief. I have come to bind up the brokenhearted, comfort mourners, give sight to the blind and freedom to the prisoners. Thing is, sometimes guys you can offer people the balm of Gilead, but that's not what they want. They want a little bit of vengeance, a little bit of self-pity, and a little bit of staying where they are in their thinking. And when that is the case, then there's nothing you can do. Any questions? No questions? No no additions? No subtractions? Any niggling questions? I disagree when you say there's nothing we can do. Okay. No matter how long it takes. True. True. Uh, the first thing, the f- when we dealt with the first aspect, uh, I so want to engage in this uh, war I'm undone thing. Uh, th- our times of worship are meant for that. Mm-hmm. Guys, if our... This might discourage you, but I'll encourage you after I discourage you. If after being in this house for four years, you are not able to catch glimpses of God in worship, then come and be prayed for because something has to be broken in your life. That's the encouraging part. The worship that this church engages in has the potential just because of God's grace to us, nothing else. It's got nothing to do with the worship leader. Has we, we have the ability to catch, if not glimpses, then panoramic views of God. And if you are not able to do that, then I'm saying to you, come and be prayed for, because it's a dullness that needs to be broken. True. But one of the ways we catch these panoramic views is when we intentionally engage God. It does not have to be on a Sunday. It can be at home. I mean, I I asked Eric for his guitar when I was staying on the mountain. Because how can you not? Every sunset, every, every, um, I'm feeling um, Eli's bones and I'm thinking to myself, oh, shucks, oh God. That's what, um, um, what's your name? Anne was saying um, <laughs> that uh, you got to keep pressing in, man. You don't give up on it. Someone didn't give up on me, man. Not someone, a few people didn't give up on me. Many did, many did, but some, some didn't. Yeah. A heck of a lot of doctors gave up on Eli. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm laughing at this. 
So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. This is a Davidic kind of thing. Now they gnash their teeth and slink into their little offices. Sorry, now I'm getting really nasty. <laughs> yes, yeah, sorry. Let's move on. Any other additions or questions? My brother-in-law is a doctor. He's a nice guy. Okay. Guys, there's a third kind of mourning. I have called it mourning seeds of faith. Um, this is a really cool kind of morning. Psalm 126. I mean, what an odd way to say it. Eh? Hey, I want to tell you about a morning that's really cool. Uh, Psalm 126, verse 6. Psalm 126, verse 6. Those who go out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with them. Let me say that again. Those who go out weeping, carrying seeds to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with them. How cool is that? It's not that they're not, they're, that they're not weeping. They're weeping, but in their weeping, they're still carrying seeds with them. Why? Not to eat, not to preserve, not to look and uh, reminisce, but to sow. And they will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with them. Guys, what's being said here, it's, it's not the absence of weeping, but in the midst of weeping, there's the presence of life. Think, think. Selah. In the, it's not, we're not talking about the absence of weeping. But the presence of life in the midst of weeping. Yeah. So that's what faith is about. The presence. No, it's not the absence of weeping. Weeping will happen. There will be times of grief. But in the middle of the grief, you still are carrying seeds to sow. That's not how people normally respond. What did, what did Job do? When everything was taken away from him. Job says in Job 13, 15, Even though he slay me, yet I will trust him. What did Habakkuk say? Though the fig tree shall not blossom, though there be no... Um, grapes upon the vine. Though the olive tree may fail its crop, though the fields may be fruitless, though the flock may be cut off, and though there be no cattle in the stall, yet I will rejoice in the Lord my God. I'll do cartwheels of joy. This is when you go weeping, but you're carrying seeds of seeds that you're sowing, and you'll return with songs of joy. What do you think Paul did with Silas in Acts 16:25? Where he was manacled and chained, and he begins to sow seeds of exactly the opposite. What did you think Jesus does in Isaiah 53 10 and 11? For it was God's pleasure to bruise him and to cause him grief. And he was willing to take it on, knowing that God's pleasure would prosper in his hands and that he would be satisfied. What do you think Josh and Becca did? When the world was telling them that this boy wouldn't be born. Go read what Josh writes on the Facebook. You won't find, weep, you won't find an absence of weeping. He, his heart weeps. But in the midst of that weeping, you will find the presence of life. Yep. 
It always bears fruit, man. What do you think you and I have been doing in different situations? When in the middle of weeping, you know, I'm carrying seed, man, and I'm going to sow. And then you find that shortly after you come back with sheaves and you come back joyful. Blessed are they that mourn this way. Sheaves are uh, female sheep. No, sheaves are, sheaves are grain that's bundled. Yeah, yeah you, you're sowing seed but you're bringing whole, a huge harvest back. Guys, this is something we need to engage in. What happens sometimes to Christians is that they weep without taking seed in their hand. There was a moment, Becca was sharing this last night, there was a moment when uh, she realized that if she did not speak out life, that things would begin to deteriorate. So her little daughter is there and no one else is around and she's not been doing this for too long. She's a newbie in a sense of speaking and she begins to speak out life. You sow with your mouth. This is what transforms the valley of Baka, which is a valley of weeping, into the valley of Baraka, which is a valley of blessing. Suddenly in Psalm 84.6 you see that these valleys that were dry have suddenly pools of refreshing water and fresh rain. You change these valleys. These are not theories, man. We know it's true. Do you know what this sowing of seed really is at the heart of it? Here's what it is really. When I go through difficult situations, I refuse, I will refuse to taint the character of God. I may feel angry, I may feel bitter, I may feel let down, I may not understand. But one thing that you and I will do is we will refuse to taint the attributes and the nature and the character of God because of what you may be going through. And that is when your hands are open and seed suddenly you find in your hand. It is impossible to have seed stay in your hand when the attitude is, how could you do it? How can you be so nasty? What a monster you are, oh God. You don't say it, but between every hallelujah, those are the things you're thinking. Again, it's not a matter of words, it's a matter of the heart. It's a hard attitude that refuses to taint the character of God in the midst of tears and trouble. Father, I'm so bitter that my dad died when I was praying. But guess what? I know who you are. And so I set aside my bitterness. That may be my feeling, a natural reaction, but I know better. And therefore I know how I think and my feelings will match up with what I know of you. Not what I see in my experience. Because I refuse to cast any suspicion on your character for I know who you are, O oh God. Amen. That's all. Suddenly you can't understand why you return with songs of joy carrying sheaves with you. When you went out in mourning. Blessed are they that mourn. And the sense of comfort that God speaks about, this comfort is, is immediate and continuous. I need us to understand that. We have a feeling 
that there's some kind of a threshold level, maybe 16 tears or 14 groans before God says, hmm, you've reached the threshold, let me bring you some comfort now. No, 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 no. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted, carries in it the sense of immediate and continuous comfort. Immediate and continuous comfort. It's just that we don't think so, and therefore we don't know so, and therefore we don't experience it. Immediate and continuous comfort. The, the word um, sounds like paracleo. That's the word used. Uh, I don't know how to spell it. Uh, you can ask a resident Greek scholar about that one. But the whole idea of this word paracleo is that you have an outside source calling to you and coming by your side to help you. It's an outside source. <laughs> Blessed are they who mourn, for they shall find an outside source calling to them and coming to them to stand alongside and help them. Let me say that again. Blessed are they that mourn, for they will find an outside source calling to them and then coming to them so that he can stand alongside you and help you. This is what Jesus was offering in Matthew. Sorry, go ahead. Is it an outside source or an inside we'll get there. <laughs> you see, because I'm so engaged in Greek, I have to break it down properly, sister. Now, you may not know Greek, but... <laughs> this is what Jesus was offering in Matthew 28, verse 11, when he says, Come unto me, all you that are weary and heavy laden, for I will give you Comfort carries in it a sense of rest, guys. A sense of reposing back. Carries in it rest. Comfort that is frantic ain't comfort. Comfort that is frantic isn't comfort. Comfort that is frantic is not comfort. Oh yes, I have the peace of the Lord. <laughs> but you... There's always rest in comfort. I, I, one of the things, I, I'm sorry I'm picking on the Dikau family, but one of the things um, that Marty said last night was when the day that Eli was being born, someone he knew died. And he was more concerned about the person who died and not about all the things the doctors had said about Eli being born. You know why? Because he was absolutely restful in the fact that there was a body of people that were praying for Eli and that he was taken care of. Ain't that nice? When a grandfather doesn't have to care too much about the birth of a 32-week-old baby because there's a whole lot of people taking care of it. So he was at rest worrying about something else. Now if a grandfather can do it with the mere humans, how much more us with the father? Where you come into this place of rest, which is part of comfort, where you know that it's taken care of so you can bother about some other things. Today, this outside source is, as Anne was saying, an inside source called the paraclete, who is also called the comforter. He comes alongside to deliver what is promised to those in Zion. Guys, what is it that is promised to those in Zion? I will give you, instead of ashes, what will I give you? 
it actually says, I will give you a diadem or a tiara of beauty instead of ashes. I will give you the oil of gladness or joy instead of mourning. And I will give you a garment of praise instead of a spirit of heaviness. This is what the paraclete wants to bring in comfort to you. A diadem or a tiara because in those days as you take ashes and sprinkle it on your head to show mourning. Those days they would wear sackcloth to show mourning. Those days they would not put any oil or perfume on them to show mourning. And yet the paraclete, the Holy Spirit, the comforter, saying that this is what I'll give you. So, the diadem or the crown of beauty that I'm going to give you. Understand that what this Holy Spirit is saying is, I will crown you with a new way of thinking. Oil of joy. I will anoint you with a new life within. Garment of praise. I will clothe you with a new way of speaking. Guys, once comfort is delivered to you, you can be responsible for it, you know, and walk in it. Once comfort is delivered to you, you can choose to be responsible for it and walk in it. So that you don't have to go running every two minutes for comfort. You can actually begin to walk in it, walk under it, be responsible for it. A diadem or a tiara or a crown. When the Holy Spirit gives me comfort, I, what he also introduces to me is, Jacob, you've been distressed about this, so let me show you something. Let me place in you a new way of thinking about the situation so that you can begin to rest in the comfort I've given you. Jacob, you're distressed right now, but let me remind you that I have anointed you with new life within you. You begin to live out of him. It is possible for you to respond like Jesus responded in the boat. It is possible for you to respond as Jesus responded at Lazarus' tomb. Jacob, let me show you how to wear a new way of speaking. When no longer are you speaking out from under the mantle of a spirit of heaviness, but you now begin to speak out of the garment of praise that I'm putting on you. You can walk in this if you want, Jacob. You can be responsible for the comfort that I've given you. Or you can come back to me again and again and again. But I would, I would rather that you begin to walk in maturity like your leader, the Christ, and begin to operate out of this. For I have appointed this unto you in Zion. Zion is the people that begin to come into maturity. Which is better? 
A child that comes crying to you every time it's frightened or a mature uh, teenager who now begins to function in ways that you that is responsible. In both cases the parent can comfort but which thrills the parent more? That's the first time I've heard a parent say a teenager thrills me more. Good for you Janet. <laughs> May it be so for you. Yeah, 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 it is. But usually parents... Usually parents don't say teenagers thrill them, but good, may it, may it bless you. And guys, then there's this whole aspect that not too far away is a day when um, Revelation 21 verse 4 will happen, perhaps in my generation, perhaps in Tavis's generation, perhaps in Eli's generation where suddenly we'll realize and savor this whole idea of God will wipe away every tear from your eyes. Just imagine not crying ever again. Where death will be no more. Where I won't know what sorrow is. Where I won't have grief or pain. Because the old condition that is already on its way out will be completely gone and the order of things that's already on its way out will have passed away completely. That'll be cool, huh? I love what David says in Psalm 42, verses 3 to 5. These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I used to praise the Lord among the happy crowd. But why are you so sad, my soul? Why so distressed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise Him, my my God and my Redeemer. Psalm 42, verses 3 to 5. Questions, guys? Blessed are the meek is what we'll be dealing with next. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. You'll have to bring $1,500 for this real estate course. And uh, <laughs> any questions? Please practice it. Please go home and practice it. Father, we bless you, Abba. What can we say? Never knew that the Beatitudes were like this. <laughs> I thought there was stuff that you kind of put together like it was your first go at things, Jesus. But it's so rich. Should have known better. Should have known better. So, uh, I'm not saying this for your benefit, but for our benefit, oh God. Blessed are they that mourn. Allow us to catch these views and glimpses of you, as Isaiah did, so that our hearts will grieve at where we are at with a desire to become better, that our hearts will grieve at the things that distress and dishonor you.